from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today I'm playing an interview with Chris Page, a Baha'i and abstract painter from Western Massachusetts. You can find his work on pagestudios.com. We talk about his intensive work with streams and sky. I started the interview by asking Chris where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Boston primarily. I actually lived in Connecticut and I believe it was Mississippi, but I have no memory of going that far back. I was born in Spain, but I grew up in Boston. So how old were you when you left Spain? uh, Three months. Okay. And then I came to this country, Mm -hmm. lived with my grandmother for a little bit, went back to live with my parents. They were living in Connecticut. Eventually they moved south, left me with a family down in Mississippi that didn't work out, and I came back to live with my grandparents in Boston. Why was it that you were left behind in Mississippi? My parents were a little flaky, Ah. and so they left me with a black family uh, down in Mississippi, and that would have been about 1952, three, about 54. Uh And if you know anything about race relationship, it doesn't sound like it's a really good idea. So I got shipped back north. So how old were you when you were shipped back north? About three years old. Okay, so you don't remember I don't remember a thing. It's all story. All the myth of my existence. So what's your earliest memory? Sitting in my grandmother's knitting store. She had a yarn store in Boston, and I was in a crib, and I remember it sort of old-fashioned, dusty environment, and that's my first conscious memory. So you grew up in the Boston area. Did you have any kind of religious upbringing growing up in Boston? I was raised a Episcopal, okay. and I was baptized in this very formal Episcopal church that mm-hmm. uh, used to freak me out on uh, Christmas and uh, Easter when they had all the incense. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was all this big, heavy-duty sort of you know, religious uh, uh, ritual sort of you know, stuff. And that sort of, as a young kid, that was just like too weird. <laughs> so when did art start appearing in your probably just about the time i moved to boston on the top floor of uh the apartment building i was living with an artist and i used to do modeling for him and then down the street there was another artist who was friends of the family so um i was surrounded from mm-hmm. a young age by art in one way or another so it was clear like when you were in elementary school that you had some talent there Good question. I don't know if talent's the right word, but I clearly had interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I always have had interest, um, though in elementary school, I don't know that it was highly articulated. Mm-hmm. At that point, I think I still had the, the lawyer uh, ambition in me. Oh, really? Well, my family had come out of going to Harvard, and the only th- options that I was sort of presented as a child was, you know, I call it the lawyer, you know, Dr. Indian chief options of the world. <laughs> But art was always of interest to you. Yeah, Yeah. and abstract art in particular. Mm -hmm. And Um, when did that sort of 
start taking shape? I think I was probably seven or eight when they used to have these big art shows in on the Boston Common. I used to live right near the Boston Common. And there was one of these big art shows, and I can remember going and looking at the work and seeing this abstract piece and liking it. And later that night, my grandmother and a friend of hers were sitting around and asked me, well, what did you think of that abstract piece? And Sort I of in a negative way, right? Definitely in a negative way, and I'd say I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of unusual for a kid who probably wants to see defined shapes of whatever reflects the reality versus something that you have to sort of use your imagination to see what the art represents to you. Yeah, I have to actually think about it because not that far off from that period of time, I went through that phase where things had to look just the way they were supposed to look. And I think it was, I can't remember if it's before or after that, but somewhere in there I had both realism and abstraction as, I can deal with that. And so how was your realism art? Was that uh, well, I can re- I, Well, I remember this, this uh, having an absolute hissy fit one day because a friend of mine was drawing uh, an airplane uh, or coloring an Indian airplane with different color crayons, and I was insisting it, no, it had to be gray. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what the airplanes are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so were your main interests in, in uh, junior high and high school was art, or did you have other interests growing up? Art was always a, an interest all the way through, especially later in high school. Um, mm-hmm. I had some interest in music, uh, mm-hmm. though I was never very good. And sports was relatively important mm-hmm. during that period. But I think I would have to say art always seemed to have some... Coherent, but as mm-hmm. I said, later in high school is when it sort of picked up and became something that I grappled with as a potential career. Right, and that was uh, at that point it was pretty much focused on abstract. For me, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can remember in high school making special trips to Boston to see the the paintings of the that of painters of that period that were doing abstract mm-hmm. art. And so, what did you do after high school? I moved to Boston. Um, now you said you were. You grew up near Boston, but not in Boston. Is that I what grew you're up right in Boston from while my grandparents were still alive, and then I moved out into the suburbs. I see. But I was living right uh, at the base of Beacon, uh, uh, Beacon Hill, right next to the Common in the Boston Garden, and that's actually where I moved back when I got out of high school. And what did you do? Um, I became a leather craftsman. I had gone to art school in Colorado that summer. And amongst other things, used to hang out in this handcrafted leather store and actually learned how to do it. And so when I came back, I became a leather craftsman. So mm-hmm. I figured out where the leather district was and bought my tools and learned how to buy leather and would make stuff at night and then go sell it on the street at BU. So how did you do? I did okay that f- for a little bit of time. When it came to wholesaling, it was much harder because... To make any amount of money, prices had to get so high that it was really difficult. So I probably did it for four months and and then started to think about going to art school. <laughs> so what did you make? What kind of other um, goods? I made belts and handbags. It was a stamped leather. I did sort of a modified version of the traditional stamped leather, which was fairly popular back in those days. Oh, yeah. And I would do things like guitar straps and... Yeah, barrettes, and, but mostly bags and, and belts. Yeah. And occasionally, if I had the chance, I'd make my own belt buckles. 
So then you were in the metalwork, or was it? Yeah, for were... a little while. Yeah, didn't make too many of those, but <laughs> and they were abstract. <laughs> <laughs> how do you, How do you mean? Well, I remember one where it was just sort of a a funky gridded pattern that was just sort of a soldered uh, thing that I'd used a ring and then gridded on top of that. Oh, okay. And as I remember, I had that for a long time. <laughs> I think I probably still have it kicking around the house for all I know, but haven't seen it for a while. You said you went to art school after that stint? Yes. Where'd you go? I went to the museum school. It's associated with the, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Yeah. And I did that for or a year, got married, then came out to the Western Mass area and did a little bit UMass, studied with another professor, artist, more independent association than formal study. Probably uh, you passed the point where you ran into the Baha'i faith. I actually became a Baha'i almost immediately after high school. I had found out that my father had died. I essentially got kicked out of the house. Why is not, that? I didn't cut my hair. I ah. refused to cut my hair. And that apparently was some sort of... Crime. Yes, <laughs> apparently so. So I was sort of feeling a little um, free and... and uh, What's the word? Not quite radical, but uh, sort of out there a bit. And I was going up and spending some time with a friend of mine. And on the way up to this uh, redone barn in Vermont, he said, I've got my, my brother's going to be there. And he's into this religion that's not like a religion. And my curiosity sort of went, hmm, what's that? And so I spent quite a few days engaged in conversation with my friend's brother and his girlfriend and out of that with a little mystical sort of intervention. That's what led me to become Baha'i. What was it that interested you in listening to this guy about the Baha'i faith? Well, I was interested in revolutionary theory at the time. And I had also started to do some spiritual investigation, but was pretty skeptical of any sort of traditional perspective. So if you'd asked me, if, did I believe in God? And I would say, no. And he said, well, do you believe in anything greater than yourself? And I went, mm, yeah, okay, so that's, that question's out of the way. And it sort of went like that for days. And we talked about, in terms of my interest in revolutionary theory, can, you know, your ends need to justify your means, or you know, they need to be coherent. And for me, they did. And so one of the things about the Baha'i faith is that it teaches social transformation in a way that is not in contradiction to the teachings themselves. It's, in fact, by living the spiritual life that you do the transformation that's needed in the world. That was quite appealing. And I don't remember a lot of the other specific questions, but it was in that sort of realm of, of social transformation and spiritual development that we talked a lot about. And you said there was also mystical experiences? Yeah, one night just before I was about to fall asleep, I heard this voice. And it wasn't a dream voice, and it wasn't a normal waking voice, but it had a presence in the room, which is why I make it sound like it's not a sleeping voice. And it just said in this really clear, feminine voice, become a Baha'i. That was it. And so a few days later, they were having what's called a fireside, where people get together and hear a talk about the faith and ask questions. And at the end, it was this person's habit. He said, does anyone want to become a Baha'i? And I said, yes, I do. I found out years later that they were absolutely shocked. 
They didn't expect it? Not a bit. Not a bit. From someone who didn't believe in God, was sort of a you know, revolutionary theory dork. It just wasn't something they were thinking was you know, there. Because I hadn't given any indication of that level of interest. And once I had had that experience, I kept it very private. I didn't like wake up the next morning and go, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what happened to me last night. No. This was somewhat of a transformative experience, I imagine. It was profoundly transformative. Um, there have been certain periods in my life where, where something will either trigger or there'll be enormous shifts of consciousness. And I remember coming back from this experience. And even the ride back was, was a trip because I hitchhiked back to Boston and I got picked up some, by some military guy. And we had this great conversation, which that in itself during the area of the Vietnam War was fairly unusual, and I still remember that. But probably the most significant thing that came out of that was this sense of seeing everything in creation streaming by my, my mind, and at the end was this idea of God. And so that stuck with me for the longest time. Uh, and it also introduced me to the possibility of sort of ecstasy and what ecstasy can do to spiritual consciousness. How did it impact the direction you were going in your life? Well, I think the confirmation around spirituality and beauty led me to to feel a a greater commitment to doing art. When I first became a Baha'i, I then went out to Colorado, ran into one Baha'i out in this little town, I came back. I actually didn't even connect with the Baha'is in Boston, and I accidentally ran into a Baha'i. So there was a fairly, about a six-month period where I was sort of very much on my own. Moreover, a, a year or two period of time, it was, in fact, the writings and how they're written and the power of an internal spiritual uh, vibration or reality that they express that confirmed my own interest in inward-looking or inwardly-based expressive art form as opposed to a sort of observational art form. Which seems to align more with impressionistic Yeah, I would. my art. interests in terms of art or in terms of what I like to look at are expressionist and impression, impressionistic. Some surrealism, especially the, the painters of the, the 50s, were probably the strongest influence, and, and they certainly all had strong spiritual basis in their work. The idea of service to humanity is sort of this basic Baha'i principle. So that sort of underlies about wanting to have it affect people in a positive way and to have it, you know, have a place in the world. Because we don't often think of art uplifting our spirits quite Mm -hmm. the same way that music does. Mm -hmm. But that's very much one of the things I like to think about when I do Mm -hmm. my work, which is Mm -hmm. why abstract work appeals to me, because it has the possibility of creating in the viewer sort of emotional awakenings, spatial sensations that can be sort of larger than your, your normal perspective. That's sort of what I would consider a spiritual, spatial um, consciousness. Now, when did you start showing your work to the public? I think the first showing I did was actually at my old high school about a year and a half after graduating. Um, I did some 
projects so you, for them. So you went back to your your old high school? Yeah, it was a private high school, okay. and they had a fairly good gallery space. And I had spent a fair amount of time working and talking with the art department person there. Mm-hmm. And so he let me do a one special project and then had a show in which I had done these sculptural paintings uh, and just filled the whole space up sort of what would would now sort of be called environmental installation work. Now, what do you mean by a structural painting? Well, what it was was actually a, a more sculptural. I was using found objects and then combining them with painted canvas. A lot of stuff that leaned against the wall had its own lights in it, sort of it sort of self-illuminating kind of concept, which I didn't pursue for long. It was there was some interesting work there, and the idea of having something that has its own light clearly interested me, since that's sort of a spiritual metaphor for we're supposed to be. We're supposed to, you know, have this inner light, our, our own light, even though it's dependent on the divine light. It's really we're supposed to become lights. So, how long did you stay in the Boston area after you? came back from Colorado? Oh, it was about three years. And then I got married. My wife was going to school out here, so we moved out to the Western Mass area. Oh, here being Western Mass. Western Mass, yeah. And so you've been out here for... A long time. long now. time. <laughs> we won't do the math. <laughs> and you've continued to pursue your art out here. Yes. Sure. One of the appeals is um, how much nature is out here. Even though I consider myself an abstract painter, my work is deeply based in uh, the experience of nature. How would you say your work has evolved from when you left Boston to these years in Western Mass? I think probably the most significant change is how much I've become attuned to natural processes, which I like and I relate to it as being closer to the reality of spiritual life because of its movement, its constant change. It's very, very dynamic. And I think of spirituality that way as well. It's I, My idea of God is a very much a living God, mm. not a has-been-done-its-thing-and-then-left, but very much in the present moment, um, mm. always active in forming the world as as we are part of. And that by watching nature and paying attention to it, I've, I say I've become much more of a learner, not so much trying to prove something as a bravado artist, but more of a, a learner trying to understand the nature of the world. If somebody wants to look at your art, can they go to a website or a gallery or both? Currently, I'm, I don't have any gallery representation. I do have a website which is found under pagestudios.com, just one word, plural studios. Well, why don't you guide us through what one would find on on that website? Well, what I've done is um, put different series of paintings in groups. And so the most, at the top of, of the page, there's some fairly recent work that's based on some investigations of skies. So there's several groups of pieces that are more open-ended, fairly ambiguous spaces that I've been starting to develop. Prior to that is a group of pieces that are based on studying uh, stream patterns. I've become very interested in chaos, not so much as chaos that we normally think of as helter-skelter and, oh my God, I just 
can't do anything anymore because my life is completely in shambles, but more chaos as extraordinarily high order. And my interest is taking my rational capacity to its limit and then stepping out beyond that, watching stream patterns in their incredible speed and dynamic movement became of real interest. And so there's a group of pieces that are based on uh, the stream work, which took about five, I think it was about five years I spent. So you can almost see the history of, there's an early group of drawings, for instance, that are fairly representational to my eye. You, Most people still wouldn't think of them as representational, but they're all based on sort of a specific space in in a, in the stream and watching it in different conditions and doing some gestural drawing work based on that idea. And then it developed so that towards the end of the series they were far more abstract pieces that used gesture in these large sort of intertwining sweeping motions, which mm. was much more about just sort of becoming what that stream chaos was about for me. So we've got the sky portion and the stream portion. Any other? You can get to even earlier work. I was doing some pieces where I had uh, tops and bottoms to pieces. The very first ones of those are actually quite abstract. Some of them have these upper sections, which are just these great big diamonds, and then the underneath are, are sort of organic shapes. That then became the very first of what I would call the real nature-based pieces, where I had taken a trip up to the Arctic. And when I came back, I started doing pieces where I would do a sky on one piece of paper and a land-based section in the lower section, and then put them together. And I started doing that because I didn't want to have my pieces be seen in the same way that we normally think of as a landscape where you sort of have perspective and everything is a fixed space. I wanted it to be created and to look a little bit more like how Sky actually gets created, which is it's a dynamic process. And it's not a fixed view, but in fact it's something that comes out of this very active world and it just happens to look beautiful when we look at it. So I set up strategies where I could try to come closer to that kind of understanding. So there's a whole set of pieces that had a, an, a top and a bottom. So tell me about your Arctic trip. We went up to the Arctic uh, maybe I think it was about 10 years ago to go right at the time when the ice is breaking up. So we went out on these um, sleds that were being pulled by snowmobiles. And we would go across the ice, sometimes going through water on top of the ice to get out to the very edge where it was breaking up. Mm. And there we would would see whales and the seabirds as they can feed in these openings that were becoming available. Depending on the wind, sometimes it was just these little tiny pockets of water where the whales would come up, narwhals and and, uh, various seabirds and a few rare birds that was really the excuse we had for going up and doing such a bizarre trip. Was it in the summer? or It was, it was summer. It was the beginning of summer. It was in June. So we had 24-hour-a-day sunlight. Temperatures were bearable. It was winter camping, but not severe. So tell me more about this sky perspective that you've been, I know, focusing on recent Yeah, it's actually, it's, yeah, it's funny. I actually realized it's was starting at the tail end of of the stream pieces, so it's actually been about three years that I've been starting to investigate it. 
probably the most interesting thing about the sky for me is that it is this vast ceiling. I consider it the sort of common ceiling that we all share. To me, if I actually pay attention to it almost any time at all, it is just astoundingly interesting and beautiful. And I particularly am interested because it's this thing that's always above us, and it's always there, and we hardly ever really seriously pay attention to it. And instead, we you know, walk around and look at the ground and drive our cars in our little you know, yellow lines or white lines, and we're locked into these very rigid ideas about what our world is. I mean, even as I look around the, the studio here, there's the square computer and, <laughs> and the square room. Very and, much right and, angles in this room. Yes, that's right. and, and that's the world most of us inhabit. And I think that our thinking works that way as well. We, have, we, we form fairly rigid ideas. We don't even realize that our ideas are often fairly fixed. And my interest in the sky is that it just completely often just wipes those sort of things out and just gives me this big, vast, moving reality, which if I associate with consciousness and especially a sort of spirituality associated with that, it becomes this much softer, more fluid, open, capable of transformation world. One of the things about looking at the sky is that it changes so fast. You'll often see some some particular thing that you can sort of focus on, a cloud form or uh, an opening in a, in a cloud bank. And you look at it, and sometimes all you have to do is just blink. And when you bring your attention back again, it's changed. And you went, how can it change that much that fast? And for me to realize that around the globe, that's going on all the time, 24-7, has been for, I think it's 400 million years or some. It's a long, big thing. And that we're dependent on it. And that it's sort of the nature of the world that we live in. And I, I just am fascinated by the fact that we live in such a dynamic really astounding uh, world. Often when I want to think about, well, do I really live on a planet? I just look up the sky and I go, yes, we live on a planet. And I'm particularly interested in it as a metaphor for the mind. This fluid, big, especially emotional arena where you know you see something and then it's just all of a sudden gone. Mm. And if we could have our own little attachments be as fluid as the sky, I think many of us would not have to have as many uh, arguments with our fellow fellow man because usually we've gotten attached to something mm. and we don't want to let our idea down. We don't want to be wrong. But if we get rid of the idea of, of right and wrong and let a concept of truth pervade, then all of a sudden it's a, an adventure to find out what the truth is. And things shift and they change, and one day you're going to be in a happier space, and then something's going to happen, you're a little distracted, and you're off kilter, and then you get yourself back in in line again. And and that's the kind of process we all go through. And if you don't take it too seriously and have a sense of flow to it, your life is is considerably less troubled. So that's some of my, my interest. Now you have both day sky and night sky? I have done a little night sky. I'm mostly a day sky person. I like the luminosity. I like the light. And I also am particularly interested in in sky as a kind of surface. One thing about a painting is that 
the easiest description of a painting is that it's a two-dimensional surface covered with pigment. And so if you go from that more philosophical perspective, then surface is a really interesting thing. And the sky makes an absolutely fascinating surface, whether it's a clear blue sky. You're not quite sure where the blue is, but you know it's there. To, let's say, an overcast day where you sort of have a better sense of where it is, but it's still not always very clear what it is, and compared to, say, looking at a regular wall or a ceiling, it's always ambiguous and always sort of this mysterious quality. And in terms of color, I'm always fascinated whether it's a a grayish sky or a clear blue sky. Um, We're getting to that time of year where we, we have lots of, you know, sort of overcast days, and one of the games that I like to play is what color is the sky? Because very often we, we just go, oh, it's a gray sky. But if you look carefully, especially maybe not midday, but sort of towards the early parts of day or the end of day, all of a sudden it's not a gray sky. And if you try to figure out what color it is, I've been known to drive myself almost crazy because you <laughs> can't put your finger on it. You go, oh, it's pink. No, it's orange. No, it's purple like that. Are you attracted to dawn and sunset skies, uh, midday skies? I have a particular tendency towards either early morning or latish afternoon, but really almost any time. Even those really bland days that most Mm. of us just go, oh my god, I can't stand it any longer. If you stop and pay attention and just start to watch the subtle changes that are going on, it can be absolutely just amazing. The other day it was getting cloudy, it was getting late. The trees, the ground were really dull. It was, it was not a whole lot of a, what we would call a good day. But I changed my perspective to look up a little bit. And all of a sudden there was the most amazing quality of light in the sky. Wasn't enough light to really illuminate the world down where we normally inhabit but it was doing its thing. Mm. And so I always think of that as, as from a Baha'i point of view, I associate it with heaven, the heavenly arena as, as the, the place where our, our thoughts and our emotions reach its, its highest place. Or where we should reside in our thoughts and yes. feelings. And as, as a metaphor for dynamic integration of process, I particularly like it as a metaphor where we have sort of the power of the sun as our spiritual source. And we think of the earth and especially water, and you take the combination of those two, and they get brought together and, and into this, as I think of it, as this dynamic, swirling process. Mm. And if we could learn to think more fluidly in these bigger sort of sweeps, I think the world would be far better off. So th- some of the, the larger qualities I think of, you know, from a Baha'i perspective, things like the unity of mankind, you know, the idea of a, of, of a oneness. And if that's a very high principle, can we let our thoughts rise to that point? We sort of have that as an overarching part of our consciousness, and then you can work your way down to the particulars. If you get lost in the particulars, then you can easily get into conflicts that are those things you can't resolve and make you feel awful and divide you against your, your neighbor. But as you rise up to higher levels of, of awareness, most of those conflicts start to look less and less important. 
Do you always have like your materials ready in hand when you, the moment strikes to uh, reflect on canvas what you're seeing in the sky? Usually I can just walk in the studio and do something mm-hmm. if need be. For the longest time I've been preparing to, to do the work in the studio and I would do lots of photographs. And uh, thank goodness for uh, smartphones. Um, <laughs> they come in handy. Yeah, as someone said, the best camera is the camera you have on you. And that is absolutely the case if you're doing any kind of nature studies. Because, as I said, you can see something and then 20 seconds later it's gone. Are you uh, envisioning other areas that you might go into in the future in, in addition to chaos, stream, and sky? Possible. The, the one thing I started noticing this summer were trees. And the fact that what I'm noticing is that the way the sky is ordered and the way trees are ordered and the way streams are ordered all have a similar kind of um, quality to them. It's, it's the ability for taking a kind of order and then inserting a random or chaotic element so that everything is unique. So there's a way in which trees have this unique quality to them that if you look at the way they're ordered mm. and then you look at the way clouds form and they're ordered, there's actually a great deal of, of correlation and similarity. And so it, it's possible that I may do work that allows the sort of uh, more earthy grounded qualities of trees and, and forests to mm. uh, have a place at some point. Mm-hmm. Can't be sure of that. But uh, there's that little awareness going on. I've just really started doing the, uh, the sky work, and I feel like that's going to take a while. Because mm-hmm. um, the other quality that I have that's sort of a thread throughout my work, especially since having gone on Baha'i pilgrimage, is a quality of prayer. And what does it mean to be able to enter into dev- a devotional uh, state of mind? And that's a hard thing to get after. So I may have my work cut out for me for a while. And it's not only just sky that I'm interested in in this body of work. It's also the quality of air and even scent. I did some small pieces this summer that were based on the idea of the scent of a peony, which is directly related to some spiritual ideas that you can find in the Baha'i writings about scent as being a sort of metaphor Mm -hmm. for the spiritual world. And if, and if spirituality is as subtle as a scent, it's a really fascinating idea considering mm. we live in this really sort of concrete world mm. and how hard it is, I think, for us to, to move into those softer, more undefined realms. So you mentioned Baha'i pilgrimage. What is that? It's a 10-day period where you get to go to the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel, and the two prophet founders of the Baha'i faith uh, each have their place of burial there. One of the things you get to do is visit the historic places where they lived, but the most special thing to do is to go into the what we call the shrines, which is uh, where they are buried. It's hard to explain unless you've been there, but there's qualities of spirituality that are accessible in those spaces, which is highly unique. And the ability to enter into these absolutely profound communions becomes present in a way that just isn't when you're away. That struck me 
just incredibly strongly because I often have an anti-religious or anti-spiritual streak. So mm-hmm. I was sort of saying, oh, this will be good to go see all the historic places and, you know, la-di-da, and I get there and it's just like, bam, I feel like I've been hit over the head with a spiritual something or other. <laughs> and, uh, well, I remember going into the Shrine of the Bab, which is, the Bab is the, means the gate, and it's the first of the Baha'i Prophets. I remember going into the to the Shrine of the Bab and just bursting into tears. It's not a, apparently an uncommon experience because when you walk out, there's someone with tissues. And going to the Shrine of Baha'u'llah was extraordinarily overwhelming for me. The first time I went in, I think I stayed about five minutes because I didn't know how to handle the, the mm-hmm. energy because it was so incredibly deep and so incredibly high that my psyche could not resolve mm-hmm. how to relate to that. So I went outside, sort of got myself together, came back in and began to adjust to the power of, of that place and found that once I started to enter into it, it was just an unbelievably deep and profound communion and very intimate. I remember having this, this sense of having come to life, this idea of the friend, that God and the manifestations are really your friend and that if you can open yourself to that, you have this resonance which is really almost impossible to talk about, but just profoundly deep opportunity to open up and ask whatever it is that you really need to ask, and then you'll get answers. It was right in the middle of doing the stream series. What happened when I came back is that the work became more abstract, because I was probably becoming more conscious of trying to draw out that quality of communion rather than just a natural process. So by the time the the series sort of came to an end, and there were two or three pieces, there's one in particular called Conduit, which is this nine-foot-tall painting, which probably more than any other piece came close to doing that. But there was also a very monochromatic piece, that also feels very close because my experience was sort of this going into this, an inner environment that's soft and not highly delineated. My sense of doing this prayerful state was was almost like going in waves. It would sort of be maybe a, I have no idea the actual time, but it felt like a couple of minutes of this intense sort of communion and then there'd be a calming down period. And I'd sort of come back out and then they'd come in again and, and have this, you know, amazing connection, often with tears and deeply overwhelming sort of communion, and then coming back out again. This is your experience on the pilgrimage? Yeah, on the pilgrimage. And so work that, that sort of has any kind of swelling becomes of real interest to me, or one that, that sort of just holds me and slowly draws me in as an overall sensation. And my work for a long time is, has been either tending towards sort of an overall single surface or towards some kind of articulation. So in the stream series, both of those get to get played out. Now, what does articulation mean? I'm thinking of my, the piece Conduit in particular, which has a lot of contrast in it. There are strong black strokes and strong white strokes and some yellow, and it's, it's much more dynamic color range. Then I think on the website, the one next to it is almost monochromatic. 
it almost just looks like there's nothing there. But it's a very similar gestural piece, but it's done with very little color variation, much closer to an open ocean kind of color realm than sunlight hitting a stream, which conduit came out of watching sunlight in streams. Do you have any shows planned at all? I don't. I did a little something in the spring, and I'm wanting to do a a sort of a large installation project, and I haven't found a location yet. What I'd like to do is take a space and actually build paintings based on that space. Depending on the space, would would indicate the size. But I'd like to do a piece that sort of, you know, held the room. I'm very interested in painting as almost architectural addition rather than a traditional pictorial world you enter into. I often think of it as addition to the architectural space. The viewer is the, the sort of center of the the piece. So I'd like to have a chance to try that. I haven't done a real opportunity like that for a while. I actually did a a show in um, Thorns Market uh, when they had the gallery up on the top floor. In Northampton, I I did a piece, and I did that somewhat as an installation. And then the show I had before that, which was at Williston, there were some pieces that were specifically designed for that space. So I would sort of know the size of the walls and then do pieces, you know, knowing where they were going to go and thinking of it as a, as a total piece, which is... Yeah, so if people want to see your paintings, is it is it possible to see them in your gallery? Um, if someone wanted to, to come to my studio, I can certainly... Yeah, website? yep, phone number's there, and they can certainly call me. And yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Oh, you're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Chris Page, a Baha'i and an abstract painter from Western Massachusetts. You can find Chris's work at his website, pagestudios.com. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website, www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website, www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Sustainer, 
and bless the Lord at all times. We're in the presence of His holiness, spirits are filled. When the praises go up, the blessings will come down. So with our praises, we will dance and sing and let you know our God is real.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.